Welcome to the Weekly Insight Podcast, where we break down the noise of the week and help you understand the psychology of the markets with your host, Andrew Dore at Insight Wealth Group. Good morning. Thank you for joining me on the latest edition of the Weekly Insight Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Andrew Dore. I appreciate you making some time today to listen to what we have to say about what's going on in the markets and the economy. I'll start this as I do every week and just remind you that what you're about to hear today should not be construed as individual investment advice, but instead our views on the market and the economy. If you have any questions about this or would like to see how it might pertain to your individual portfolio, I'd encourage you to give us a call or speak with your financial advisor. With that, let's get started. It's the end of summer. School is starting. I've got my two little munchkins starting on Wednesday. It's amazing how fast this summer went. It's also, you know, kind of a calm time in the markets. Everybody's getting their last minute vacations in. The inflation data has calmed things down a little bit. So this week, we're going to take a bit of a grab bag approach to the Weekly Insight because there are a few interesting things that I saw and read this week that I just want to discuss with you that I think are timely and important for investors. So let's take a look. We'll start with the market update. It was actually a pretty decent week in the market this week. We saw the market end down a little bit for the week. The S&P was down just a little bit more than 1%. Almost all of that downward trend for the market happened on Friday. Otherwise, the week was pretty flat. But Over the course of the last two months, going back to the bottom on June 16th, the market has looked pretty good both here at home and abroad. So we haven't really had much to complain about in a week that when the market's down 1% is certainly not anything to be concerned about. But I thought it was interesting what happened Friday because the the thing that happened was a little bit more esoteric than some of the other really big picture things we've seen, you know. We had bad inflation data or the Fed announced what they're going to do. And and those things have been kind of the big picture things that have driven the market really since the beginning of this year. Instead, what we saw on Friday was over $2 trillion in options expire. Now, that seems like a lot, but that actually happens every month. We see options expiry happen. But given the growth we've seen in the market in the last two months, I think it's probably likely the traders got a little bit more conservative on Friday when their options matured. Does that indicate bad news ahead? Not necessarily. I think it does signal that traders are being a little bit more cautious as we head into a pretty dramatic four-week period. We've had the last month where there hasn't been a lot going on other than the inflation data. And the next month from here, things get a lot more interesting. And that starts this week. We have the Jackson Hole Economics Symposium this week, something that neither you nor I are fancy enough to get invited to. But Chairman Powell is giving a much-anticipated speech this week at the Jackson Hole Conference. should provide some decent guidance for where he thinks the economy is going, what he thinks is happening with inflation, and I'm sure will be very much a driver in what the markets believe the Fed is going to do. Then on September 13th, we get the CPI data for August. And then just after that, on the 21st, we're going to see what the Fed is actually going to do. So there's going to be a lot going on over the next four weeks where we've had a much calmer period. I think we have to know that we're ramping up into something a little bit more intense. And that's fun for us. We're excited about it. I'm certain we'll be talking about the Jackson Hole Symposium next week. But right now, I think what happened at the end of last week was these traders taking a look at those options positions, maybe dialing the risk down just a little bit. So moving on to the next topic, 
energy in the market. I you have heard me harp on this so much over the last several weeks, really several months. The abridged version is simply that energy prices were having a pro- profound impact on inflation and inflation was having a profound impact on the market. And until energy prices began to retreat, we frankly didn't believe the market would recover. And the timing of that ended up being something that was very interesting to watch. And we spent a lot of time on this podcast and previous memos detailing this. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those or or read those memos. But one of my favorite commentators is a guy by the name of John Authors. He writes for Bloomberg, and he puts a piece out every day. I got to give him credit. I can't imagine how you (laughs) provide market commentary every single day, and it's always very well thought out and researched. But he highlighted this connection in a column he had on Friday. And he looked at it a slightly different way, but I think the correlation is still there, and I thought it was really quite stunning. And the chart he included in this, I've pulled the chart and included it in our weekly insight memo, which you can see on our website. It's linked in the show notes. But what he did was he took a look at the S&P 500, he took the energy companies out of it, and then he compared it to the price of oil. And what you find is that the correlation going back a year now has been almost perfect. When oil prices go up, the market goes down. When oil prices go down, the market goes up. And it's been almost perfectly linked and certainly almost perfectly linked since the beginning of this year. And I'm going to quote him for a second because he pointed out something that I thought was interesting. He said, quote, it shouldn't be this way. The global economy is far less oil intense than it was in the 1970s, meaning that fuel accounts for a smaller percentage of gross domestic product. An information and services-based economy shouldn't be so dependent on burning fossil fuels. I agree with him. He's right. But to the market this year, all that has mattered is inflation. And energy prices have been the biggest driver of inflation for the last several months. And so until that changes, which it is changing now, which we're very excited about, energy prices will continue to be a market driver. I think the big question that maybe Mr. Authors is asking and that I would be asking as well is when do we get to the point that inflation has subsided subsided enough that we begin to see a disconnect between energy and the market? It's going to happen. I just can't tell you when, but it's something that we're going to be watching very carefully. Next topic, the tax man. The tax man cometh. We've all seen the bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I talked about it, I think it was a couple weeks ago on the podcast. Ironically, the Inflation Reduction Act has very little in it designed to reduce inflation, but that's pretty Washington. But one of the things, I think probably one of the biggest topics of conversation about the Inflation Reduction Act has been the uh, new army of 87,000 enforcement agents that were authorized to the IRS through the Inflation Reduction Act. The idea of adding an additional 87,000 people to do audits can bring shivers to people. Uh, You know, let's be clear, the U.S. tax code is a monstrous beast. And I believe that everyone listening to this podcast, I hope everyone listening to this podcast, does their darndest to make sure that they are in compliance with federal tax law. But I think that every one of us would probably go, I, I hope I'm right when the auditor comes knocking. And even if you are right, the simple act of the auditor coming knocking can be very expensive. It can be very time consuming. So it's got people a little bit worried. But I think the question is just how realistic is it that the IRS is going to be able to staff this new phalanx of auditors? And I went and asked our friends at Inside CPA this question. And 
The answer was that it's not very likely. In fact, and I thought this was fascinating, last year, well before the Inflation Reduction Act, last year the IRS put out a notice to hire 470 new auditors. Now, 470 is a lot less than 87,000, but 470 new auditors. Guess what? It hasn't gone well. They have not been able to fill those positions. Why? Economics. In the latest round of hiring, the IRS had explained what they were looking for as one of two things. CPAs or people with a minimum of 30 semester hours of coursework in accounting. So essentially, think of that as a bachelor's degree in accounting. The salaries that they were offering... $31,000 to $68,000 per year. That ain't much. The average salary for an auditor, over $60,000. The average salary for an auditor in the the public markets today, over $60,000 plus benefits. For those who have experience, good experience, well over $85,000 a year. Well, if you take $31,000 and you look at that and say over... 40 hours a work week, and 52 weeks a year. The IRS is offering to pay people at the low end of this $14.90 an hour. I can get more than that working at McDonald's today. And so the idea that they are going to be able to hire 87,000 people to not only take those salaries, but also, frankly, to take the job of being an IRS auditor, which isn't exactly a fun job. People aren't exactly excited to see you knock on their door. For that amount of money, I think they're going to have a very hard time filling those roles. And just one other thing, 87,000 auditors or accountants would make up nearly 7% of all of the accountants in America. There are 1.3 million accountants in America. The hiring pool just isn't big enough to meet the IRS demands. So I would just say, I get it. The bill sounds scary. The bill sounds nasty. But when you take it back and you look at what could reasonably be done, it's much less likely that the IRS is going to be hiring 87,000 people to come knock on your door. Last topic, education. It's a school year time. So education costs come up a lot in conversations that I'm having with clients. And I, you know, I just thought we'd spend a a minute here. And I'm going to tell you what you're about to hear is very much editorializing. I'm going to state at the beginning that everything you're about to hear doesn't apply to you as much as it applies to the broader picture. And everyone's situation is different and you should talk about it with your financial advisor. But it's no secret in this country that the cost for college has been skyrocketing for years. I provide some data from U.S. News and World Report in the recent uh, memo that shows that in the last 20 years, the average cost for in-state tuition at a public university has risen 211%. Out-of-state at a public university, 171%. So that leads to the question of how much should you as a parent or grandparent be saving to send your kids to school? Again, important caveat that every family is different, every situation is different. I might suggest that the answer to that question is almost nothing. Now, you should take advantage of the tax opportunities provided to you by a 529. If there is a way to reduce your income taxes by contributing to a 529, I'd encourage you to do that. But that is not a particularly large number on an annual basis. Outside of that, how much should you be putting aside for college? When I say nothing, I think a lot of people are going to be like, Andrew, you're crazy, but I need you to hear me out on this. And I'm going to use an example. Let's suppose that you had a baby yesterday 
and you intend to send them to an in-state public university 18 years from now. I will use my alma mater, the University of Iowa, as an example. And instead of using 211% over 20 years, or roughly 10% a year in cost inflation for in-state tuition, I'll reduce that, and I'll use 6.5%. So right now, if you go on the University of Iowa's website, you will see that the current cost for in-state tuition, fees, room, and board at the University of Iowa is $21,829 for the 2022-2023 calendar year. Assuming a four-year education, that comes to just over $87,000. If you inflate that number at 6.5% for 18 years, that comes to $271,261 for the University of Iowa in-state tuition. Now, I love the University of Iowa. Go Hawkeyes. But do I love it $271,000 much? I don't think so. Now, Imagine that you have two kids, so now you're over $540,000. To hit that number for two kids for four years at an in-state school, parents would have to start investing the day their child is born $1,500 a month for the next 18 years while earning 6% a year on your money. I would suggest to you that the better choice is to focus that money on your retirement savings. Thankfully, retirement accounts, including IRAs and 401ks, allow you to use those funds to pay for college. If instead you were to plow all of that money into a 529 account and your child doesn't attend school, that money is no longer yours to to use as you see fit. And if it gets taken out for anything other than qualified educational expenses, the tax hit is massive. So at the very least, I would encourage you as we start this school year, and this is a topic that is top of mind for people, sit down with your financial advisor and have a discussion about what the future looks like because it may not be as straightforward as you think it might be because these numbers are getting so big that it may not be tangible for you to go out and accomplish what you think it might be. We will end it there this week. As always, I would encourage you, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you have thoughts on this, please don't hesitate to give me a call. You can reach us here at the office at 515 273-1333 or you can always visit us on the website at www.insightwealthgroup.com I hope you have a wonderful week I hope you get to enjoy the end of summer here good luck with the new school year and we'll talk to you soon take care securities offered through Arate Wealth Management LLC member FINRA SIPC NFA investment advisory services offered through Arate Wealth Advisors LLC an SEC registered investment firm